Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. Hey, Jordan Harbinger here. Subscribe to the only show that will show you how to apply the world's greatest ideas from the most striking minds. After presenting more than a thousand interviews, I couldn't be more compelled to introduce you to the Jordan Harbinger Show. We've got spies and CEOs, athletes and authors from Kobe Bryant to Malcolm Gladwell, Tony Hawk and Howie Mandel to the chairman of Google, founders of LinkedIn and Instagram, antiquities smugglers, con men, brilliant scientists, national heroes, and even the head of the CIA. Listed as Apple's best of 2018 and countless other awards that, let's be honest, you probably don't care about right now. So come and have a listen for yourself and join me as we exploit the superpowers of the world's most incredible thinkers, amazing achievers, and iconic change makers with their insights delivered right into your mind. You'll get that blueprint of their brilliance each week so that you can learn to live what you listen. Subscribe right now to The Jordan Harbinger Show, available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you're listening now. Napa know-how. At Napa Auto Parts stores and Napa Auto Care centers, get a $25 prepaid Visa card when you get any Napa automotive battery. It's the best deal for some of the best batteries from some of the best car people around. But we might be a little partial. Anywho, pick up any Napa automotive battery and save 25 bucks. Do it yourself or have it done for you. That's Napa know-how. Napa know-how. At participating Napa Auto Parts stores and Napa Auto Care Centers. While supplies last, offer ends 831.20. Celebrity Big Brother is back, and we've got recaps of every single episode here on Rob as a Podcast. So whether you watch for the epic blindsides or for the insanity, like Ricky Williams giving a colon massage to a constipated Cato Kalin, yes, that happened. Check out our Celebrity Big Brother coverage on Rob as a Podcast on Apple Podcasts, PodcastOne.com, or the Podcast One app. Hey, Jordan Harbinger here. Subscribe to the only show that will show you how to apply the world's greatest ideas from the most striking minds. After presenting more than a thousand interviews, I couldn't be more compelled to introduce you to the Jordan Harbinger show. We've got spies and CEOs, athletes and authors from Kobe Bryant to Malcolm Gladwell, Tony Hawk and Howie Mandel to the chairman of Google, founders of LinkedIn and Instagram, antiquities smugglers, con men, brilliant scientists, national heroes, and even the head of the CIA. Listed as Apple's best of 2018 and countless other awards that, let's be honest, you probably don't care about right now. So come and have a listen for yourself and join me as we exploit the superpowers of the world's most incredible thinkers, amazing achievers, and iconic change makers with their insights delivered right into your mind. You'll get that blueprint of their brilliance each week so that you can learn to live what you listen. Subscribe right now to The Jordan Harbinger Show, available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you're listening now. Napa know-how. This month, Napa's got all kinds of motor oil deals that can save you some serious cash, like a five-quart jug of Napa Full Synthetic Motor Oil for just $16.49. With savings like that, you may start feeling like a VIP, but don't let it go to your head. These oil deals are for everyone. Quality parts, helpful people. That's Napa know-how. Napa know-how. General states pricing. Sales prices not include applicable state local taxes or recycling fees. Offer ends 831.20. It's a special day, Mark Fernandez. I'm excited. We have a very special guest in the studio right now. But I want to throw some news out there before. Yeah. Before we introduce the guests, before, and get all, before like, we really getting, get into we're this, getting, we're getting super nerdy today. Oh, it's going to be, I mean, this is ridiculous <laughs> how nerdy yeah. we are going to be. So let's yeah. start it off with this Benioff and Weiss, that we know they're doing Star Wars movies, yeah. they, they help create Game of Thrones, has been confirmed by 
HBO of all places, that Benioff and Weiss are going to do a trilogy of Star Wars films. Com- Confirmed by HBO. HBO's president. Uh, <laughs> yeah. 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 A- so you know what? So like, look, we have we have bigger news than that right now. I think. Yeah. Okay. We do. Joining us today is the great Sean Carroll. Yes. Um, Caltech physicist. Um, one of the people that I just like. I will listen to his podcast. I will look at his lectures online, and just let my imagination go crazy. Uh, Sean Carroll has been kind enough to come on the show today and talk to us a little bit about the science of Star Wars, even though that sounds like an oxymoron. um, There has, you know, we can make some intellectual leaps, but Sean Carroll, thank you so much for being on the show today. Sure. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Oh, thank you. This is great. This is a treat for me. And I know Mr. Fernandez. Yeah. I'm very excited. All right. So now, so now that, because I didn't want to just leave Sean out there. Right. Correct. Because Sean, you're a very (laughs) big game. I keep my mouth shut is the problem. Yeah. Yeah, No, 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 it's all right. And you're a big Game of Thrones fan, as as I found off off air. So the idea of Benioff and Weiss now going in and having a trilogy of Star Wars films, and what does that do for you? I think it's cool. I mean, they certainly – I love what they did in Game of Thrones. Yeah. There's, there's some skepticism on my part how they do when they have the entire controls without G.R.R. Martin's source material. Right. right? Yeah. Uh, so I just don't know. But I, I love the idea that it's a trilogy because I, I, you guys probably know about this better than me, so correct me if I'm wrong. But there's this weird thing with the current ongoing trilogy mm. where J.J. Abrams made the first one mm-hmm. and didn't tell Ryan Johnson, like, anything of what to do <laughs> in the second one. Like, do whatever you want. Like, yeah, I'll, yeah. you know, which yes. is prob- – which is – Cool, but not the best way to make it. No. I'm a believer that you should know where you're going. Absolutely. Yes. Agreed. And then, first of all, <laughs> you just summed up, and this is what I love about physicists, right? They're, they're able to boil down the universe to its constituent parts, and you just essentially boil down 26 it's podcast what a, episodes. <laughs> it's what a lot <laughs> yeah, of the, which is Our entire discussion is about that. Now, did The Last Jedi work for you? Because that's yeah. a, n- another big part of all this. Is Force, I love Force Awakens and Last Jedi. You're a little bit more on the Force Awakens side. Yeah, last, not last like Jedi. Last yeah. Jedi. Where do you land? I'm a Rogue oh, One guy. That nice. was my favorite. I, but, I love Rogue One. Um, but I, I liked them both. I like Force Awakens and Last Jedi. And I, I, I understand, I get the objections to yes. Last Jedi. Um, but I, you know, I thought it shook things up and it was kind of cool internally. Like as a movie by itself, I thought it worked. Yeah, well, there. There you go. So first of all, as a movie by itself, I also think it's cool. I just think that when you contextualize it in the universe of Star Wars is where things start to become inconsistent, you know? It's like if it was like a math equation, there's there's something wrong with this one, even though by itself it might make sense. When you put it into the pieces of the other ones, it doesn't. Yeah, no, I totally get that. I mean, I think that uh, J.J. Abrams' Star Trek movies Mm. work as movies by themselves, but I just can't take them because they don't fit into the Star Trek mm. uh, uh, universe very much at all. So, yeah, Force Awakens, I, I didn't quite feel that way, but I get it. Yeah. Yeah, and that's the big kind of thing. A lot of the questions right now are what what's the plan for this next movie? Was J.J. brought in to kind of not save, mm. but like come in and, and bring it around to his original vision? But that is a problem that I've had. I'm wondering the chatter is saying so. Were they not planning this? And so, that's what I so, don't but, understand. But, but, but uh, wait a minute. So HBO confirmed the trilogy thing somehow? I think it was a slip, to okay. be quite honest with you. <laughs> yeah. They were talking about now – Benioff and Weiss were also signed on to do Confederate, which caused a big kind of big deal, big controversy. So they were talking about where is that right now? What are the plans for Game of Thrones? And uh, it was Casey Bloys, who is an HBO executive, who said, well, Dan and David are finishing up the final season of Game of Thrones, and then they're going to go into the Star Wars universe. 
When they come out of it, I assume they will come back to us. The delay has to do with the fact that they were offered three movies. Okay. Things so, you shouldn't say. I'm, things you shouldn't say. I'm familiar with this now because I have a podcast yeah, and I had yeah, Scott Derrickson on, the director of uh, Doctor Strange. Yeah. And oh, wow. he, he mentioned on the podcast that he was directing Doctor Strange 2 and he wasn't supposed to mention oh, that. Oh, really? So we, we went back and edited it out before it got released. Oh, so okay, that, was, okay. that was public knowledge, so I don't feel bad. So, so yeah. you almost broke some movie news. I almost did. I tried very hard not to and I succeeded in not doing it. <laughs> yeah. That's fantastic. Yeah. That's cool. He's one of my favorite directors, too. He's, uh, he's It was a fantastic. great conversation, too, because we talked about movies but also like other things because he's very religious and I'm yeah. very not religious mm. and so we talked about all that stuff. Yeah, is he Catholic? Uh, no, evangelical Christian. Uh, evangelical Christian. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Okay. I didn't know that. Well, this is crazy. Yeah. We, we, we got a great guest, <clears throat> and you got you had Scott Derrickson on. You almost got Doctor Strange two scoop, which yeah. I love. <laughs> I, yeah. I personally got it. But yeah, the world personally. Did not get it, yes, but I think you yeah, need to it, get look, into this. If uh, if any of our listeners want to just you know listen to a podcast that really tests the bounds of reality. Uh, the Mindscape podcast with Sean Carroll is is really 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 cool. Um, where where can the folks find it? Is it across all the different platforms or everywhere podcasts are sold? You should be able to get it. Um, I have my own website, preposterousuniverse.com, dot com, mm-hmm. where I have little show notes and links and things, transcripts for every episode. But it's on Apple and and Stitcher and all the things. Yeah, Google yeah, Play. yeah. So check that out. You will not be sorry. Truly mind-boggling stuff, which is what we're about to get into here. That's yeah, that's exactly why we wanted to have you on, Sean. And so with that, it is Rule of Two, Episode 26, Rise. This is the Rule of Two podcast, mm-hmm. right, which, which is based off the old Sith Rule of Two, that there's always, always two there are, a master and an apprentice. Yep. So today we welcome our Sith Inquisitor to yes. the table. <laughs> yeah. And that is Sean Carroll, and you are the author of the book, The Big Picture, On the Origins of Life, Meaning, and the Universe Itself, and the, of course the host of the podcast, Mindscape, which I'm going to do a deep dive into now because this is going to open it up for me. Because yeah. I've, I'm a Star Wars guy through and through, grew up with it, love the mythology of the Force, love the idea of like science and, and parsecs and whatever and whatever they're saying out there. But now we get to talk to you <laughs> and figure out what are parsecs? What yeah. are these things that we want to get yeah. into? So so before we get started with that, can you give us a little background about how you got started in this whole physics thing and and how a young man becomes what we see before us today? Yeah, you know, for me it was reading, reading books, right? Yeah. Like I didn't I did not come from an academic family. I came from a long line of steel workers, right? You know, went to public school with sort of kind of slightly crappy science classes, but um found myself in the local public library in whatever section of the Dewey Decimal System it was <laughs> that had quarks and leptons and black holes in the Big Bang and just read them all and just was fascinated. I'm like this, and I was 10 years old, right? And I'm like, this is what I want to do. Wow. I do not recommend that you decide what you want to do when you're 10 years old. What do I know when I'm 10 years old? But uh, still doing it. So I guess it worked out for me, yeah. So when you were 10 years old, you knew you wanted a career in physics at 10 years yeah, old? Yeah, in theoretical physics, yeah. Wow. <laughs> wow. And how, how advanced was your mathematics at that age? Oh, it was not good. It was like, you know, A squared equals B squared plus C squared. Like, I knew what a triangle was like. But, okay. you know, I had – it wasn't even just the lack of mathematics. I didn't know what it meant to be a physicist. Like, mm-hmm. who pays you to do – like, the idea that, oh, you go to college and then you go to graduate school and you come, become a professor. None of those things were known to me. And no one in my sphere of influence had any idea. And there was no internet, right? So mm-hmm. it's part of the reason why I'm motivated to – 
write books and do podcasts and things like that because you never know, you know, one out of a million people you reach is really inspired by it. Yeah. And, and uh, when, when did you realize that you also had the aptitude for mathematics to go along with the fascination in the physics? I think that it was about the same time that I began to realize I was relatively good at it. Like I had no idea you know, how good. I'm still not quite completely sure. But uh, I liked math, right? You know, I liked reading books about geometry and topology. The donut is the same topology as a coffee cup. And, you know, this stuff blew my mind, yeah. Mm. And and it wasn't – for me, you say 10 years old and you're reading books and you're in the library and everything. It wasn't maybe any kind of movies like sci-fi or Star Trek, as you mentioned, that maybe further that along and and, and, and captured your imagination or was it all books? It went hand in hand and I did read a lot of science fiction books. Yeah. Um, Robert Heinlein was my guy but I also read, you know, Asimov and Clark and Sturgeon and um, Roger Zelazny, Anne Caffrey, Mm. Ursula Le Guin, you know, many of these people, Harlan Ellison. Uh, But... In my mind, anyway, that was just something else I liked. It wasn't like because I like science, I like science fiction or vice versa. It was just I like both of these things. That's great. And uh, when was your discovery of Star Wars? Was it the original trilogy? I was there. I was standing in line and I went back, you know, in 1977. That was was my age, right? Because I was 11 years old. That was exactly the target. Right. Only one year after you realized that you wanted to do a career in science – then George Star Lucas Wars. gives you Star Wars. Yes. Yeah. I mean, at the time, there was uh, the big thing that people were, were wondering was, which is going to be the bigger movie, Star Wars or Close Encounters of the Third Kind, right? <laughs> oh, right. Yeah. Now they say, oh, yeah, that didn't turn out to be close, did it? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But, That's a great story, too, because I believe George Lucas thought that Spielberg was going to beat the pants off of him with yeah. Close Encounters because he did have the – he had Jaws under his belt. Yeah, it was a big deal, and uh, George Lucas was much less known than Steven yeah. Spielberg even at that time, right? Um, but and, and even to this day, the first Star Wars movie, which I like to call Star Wars, right. that's what we called it when I was growing up, <laughs> right. uh, is my favorite movie in, in the Star Wars um, universe. Like, I, actually, I think I, I enjoy um, Raiders of the Lost Ark even better than Star Wars, but it's, I, I was formed by that. Yeah. It's hard to argue. We, yeah. We've talked about Raiders what, many times. What, what is it about Raiders? Is it the fact that it's a scientist in the search of truth that kind of relates a little bit more to you than maybe some of the themes of Star Wars? It, was, it, it just really worked on so many levels. Like One that, I, that many people pointed out that I didn't realize until years later is that Indiana Jones himself does nothing useful in the movie, right? Like if he, if you removed him from the movie, the same events would happen. Like he didn't stop anything from happening, mm, right? That's right. But yeah. there was still, you know, he's a great character. Uh, the action is good. The mythology is good. You know, the little scene when he's lecturing in the yeah, college yeah. is good. It's The pacing is perfect and so colorful and it's sort of uh, there's some nostalgia there because yeah. of the old timey uh, effects and so yeah it was it was just an iconic movie for so me. like like Riley was saying a little bit earlier in that first Star Wars movie there's a scene um, and just so the listeners know we're really going to try our best to tackle some of these Star Wars things with science and try to dig deep into them yes um, one that I think might just be a nice little icebreaker because I think everybody by now, which is kind of funny, that everybody by now knows what a parsec is. Mm-hmm. Um, in that first Star Wars movie, um, Obi-Wan Kenobi um, takes Luke to meet um, Han Solo so that they can get passage off of Tatooine. In that scene, he tells them, well, you never heard of the Millennium Falcon. It's the one that did uh, the Kessel Run in under 12 parsecs, right? Yeah. So for, for, for many years, the mainstream audience thought that a parsec 
was a measurement of of time. Yeah, because that's the context of the sentence, right? Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. But in, in reality, a parsec is a, a measure of distance. It's very distance. useful for um, astronomers. It's you know of order of magnitude. It's a light year. You know, a parsec is I think two point something light years. You, you can Google it, right? So mm-hmm. it's trillions of miles, twenty trillion miles. It's a very big distance. Um, the distance to the nearest star is two parsecs or something like that. To uh, to Andromeda is that the nearest star? Andromeda is a galaxy. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, not Andromeda. Millions of parsecs um, away, uh, <laughs> Alpha Centauri is the nearest star. Right, yeah, right, right. That's right. right. So right. I'm sure that it was just a mistake in the script, right? Like whoever wrote it thought it sounded cool and didn't realize that parsec was distance, not time. That's that's where now, I was going. They it, could easily have retconned it so that you know the idea of the Kessel Run was not to do a race like a car race rather it was like to you know hit a certain number of targets and he did it in the shortest you know distance between these moving targets or something like that as far as i know they didn't even try like you know did you see the solo movie yeah okay so in the solo movie they actually he get he goes into like a black hole of some kind yeah, right. It, 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 is, is that what like happens? a maw in there in there somewhere? Yeah, it was a little confusing for me. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> a little I couldn't follow because you, yeah, you have the love, parsecs. Yeah, yeah. Then, we don't love the solo movie, but but do you even remember how they tried to make I, it work? I do for remember that? that they tried. I don't remember the details. Yeah. I, I enjoyed the solo movie, but you know, it wouldn't be a Star Wars film if it weren't confusing at some right time. Yeah. At some point, I mean, the first one was very confusing. So so, so then, in science, what's the practical use for the parsec? Like like how was the parsec created a, as a unit of measurement? This is actually secretly a great question. Like I, we could do the whole hour on this one. Okay, good, fantastic. <laughs> when you look out into the sky at night, right, you see stars. Like not here in LA, but out there in the world, you know, far away from the city, you see stars. You have no idea how far away they are. Right, they're all like shining. Some of them are bright, bright some of them are dim. Uh, but if you are very, very good at your astronomical observations, so you have a telescope and and you know you have very, very delicately calibrated instruments, what you can do is as the Earth moves around the sun, the stars will slightly shift with respect to each other. You know, yeah. Just like when you move here, the different objects move close versus far away. Sure. Right? It's called parallax. Parallax begins with the same three letters as parsec for a good reason. Ah. Right? So how much does it move? Not very much. So we measure angles in degrees. And for some reason, which I don't know, um, rather than talking about, you know, a tenth of a degree or a hundredth of a degree, we divide degrees into one degree is 60 minutes, 60 minutes of arc. And one minute of arc is 60 seconds of arc, Mm. right? So a parsec is the distance you would have to put a star at so that its parallax was one second of arc, parsec. Wow. Parallax second. You bring those together. That's a parsec. First of all, I didn't know that. that yeah, this is, this no is what idea. I'm talking about. This yeah. is why. This is why we bring Sean Carroll <laughs> yes. on, the science of Star Wars. Yes. Yeah. So a parsec is actually this parallax concept, concept that you're talking about, and it's just one second of the 60 degrees. That's right. And uh, so one second, is, one second is a 60th of one minute, which is a 60th of one degree. So you're imagining like a degree is already small and then a 60th of that and a 60th of that is, is the parallax for a star so, that's one parsec away. So, so by the way, it's completely nonsensical because that's only true if you're on Earth, right? If you're on Mars, parallax <laughs> would be different because the orbit has a different size. And presumably interesting. Earth is not there in the galaxy far, far away. So, 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 oh, okay. so, so, so a parsec is a unit of measurement 
that's relative and specific only to a position from the planet Earth. We yeah, it's it's the one second of arc parallax in on Earth's orbit. Yeah. So, so would it change depending on where Han Solo was in relation to the galaxy? Well, they would have invented a different measure. Yeah. Right. So uh, who knows how far away Parsec <laughs> is, is in uh, that when, galaxy? When when did the Parsec uh, become sort of popular in the science culture? Like like was it was it being used to measure? Um, was it part of trying to understand um, the the bend of light itself by by it's seeing not the bend of light? It's the just it's really your perspective is a little bit different, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, it, I think this is a little bit past my area, but I think that they got good at that sort of late eighteen hundreds, early nineteen hundreds. Oh, those are the years when they were figuring out the scale of the universe. Okay. So. It wasn't until – so you could see stars. You could see Alpha Centauri and whatever and figure out how far away they are. Maybe even early 1800s. I'm not sure. But um, things like the Andromeda Galaxy, you had no idea. Cause it, so if you're too far away, you just don't move when you, when you go from one side of the Earth to the other. It's just too far away. Your parallax is too small. Mm. And it wasn't until the 1920s that Edwin Hubble here on Mount Wilson, not too far away. We can see it. Um, measured the fluctuations of brightness of various stars in the Andromeda galaxy and realized it's quite far away. It's a separate galaxy all by itself. And you said 12 parsecs is the equivalent of about 24 light years. Something like that. Something yeah. like that. Okay. And what what is the size of, of the Milky Way galaxy from one end to the other? Well, it's, it's sort of fades off in a kind of fuzzy and hard-to-define way. Mm-hmm. But you should think of the Milky Way as being maybe – Several tens of thousands or a hundred thousand light years across. Wow. Wow. Jeez, we're going to need a Millennium Falcon we're here to get a across. Boat. <laughs> yeah, we're going to need and a bigger, a boat. bigger yeah. boat. And a hundred billion stars in the Milky Way. A hundred wow. billion. This Several is... hundred billion, yeah, something like that. That's the yeah. unit. But smiling ear to ear right now. Yeah. <laughs> but but um, Star Wars takes place a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Right, so it's not our galaxy. That's right. It's not our galaxy. Is there a lot of variant uh, or, or, or variance in size from galaxy to galaxy, like the Milky Way versus Andromeda versus some of the other ones? Absolutely, yeah. The Milky Way is a pretty big galaxy. Uh, we would be we'd have pride of neighborhood, except Andromeda is even bigger, and we're mm. sort of in the same group. So Andromeda is the big boy in the group that we're in. We're second in command, and then there's many little satellite galaxies. And what happens is the smaller galaxies are lighter weight. So they're less good at holding on to their stars. So mm. the smaller galaxies just pass right through the big galaxies and get stripped. So what what is left is a bundle of dark matter particles, right? There's still matter there and they're still held together, but you can't find them because they have no stars in them now. Mm. And so there's a whole you know uh, subfield of astronomy that is d- dedicated to finding new little tiny galaxies in what we call the local group with, with uh, the Milky Way and Andromeda. So could this – Hypothetically, of course, I mean, could could there be a, a galaxy that exists, you know, a f- long time ago in a galaxy far, far away? There could be a Jedi running around with a lightsaber. Could be. Could be. I mean, yeah. that's all ask, I need. When that's you all ask I need. scientists, like, is something possible or could it be? It's probable. The almost the answer is almost always yes. Yes. But you know, because because likely... be- <laughs> light is another story, right? Right. Lightsabers so, are harder. Yeah, so speaking of lightsabers, perfect mm, segue. Thank uh, you. Obviously a pro. Um, <laughs> um, engineering aside, okay, yeah. um, if we were to like look at the lightsaber and see all the practical effects that it has from the movies and you were to do your own little thought experiment about how 
a lightsaber would be possible, where would you start? Right. So just just to back up a little bit for yeah. context purposes, yeah. you know, I've done quite a bit of science consulting for movies, yeah. not for Star Wars movies, but for like um, some of the Marvel movies, for Tron Legacy, Angels and Demons, things like I that. I love Tron Fantastic. Legacy. And I love so, them. and I know perfectly well that the science comes last in right. most of these movies, right? Like yes. they make up the cool thing they want to make up, mm-hmm. and then they bring in scientists who are like, give me some science words that I can attach to this. So, sure. So we shouldn't expect that there is any scientific explanation for things like lightsabers or the force or whatever. But as I told, you know, once we brought in um, some producers who were working on a movie to Caltech where I'm a a researcher and we talked to my graduate students. They wanted to see like real physicists in action. Mm. And they were like, how could this happen? And the students were all like, it couldn't. (laughs) Which is useless as a science consultant, right? Like you just say, you can't do that. (laughs) Right. You don't get invited back. So I told them, think of the plot of the movie as data not as a theory you're trying to invent. Mm-hmm. Like, it happened. Like, you don't have a choice of saying it didn't happen. Right. Like, you, right. it happened. How could you possibly explain it? Right. I think that's the attitude we need to take towards lightsabers and things yes. like that. So You can observe their action in the there movie. There they are. Yeah. Just, like, just like you said. Like, we know what they do. Yeah. What can we say about them? So, clearly, they're not light. <laughs> like, I think that the phrase lightsaber has to be poetic, right? They're mm. bright. They shine. So that's, they give off light. But light doesn't end after it goes about a meter, right? It doesn't right. end and come back. There needs to be a mirror there or something, which there's not. And also light isn't solid. If you hit two you know, lasers through each other, they just go right through each other, mm. right? So I think that you have to imagine that lightsaber is something other than light. It's somehow particles like a plasma in an electromagnetic field or something mm-hmm. like that, right? And, so. and what defines plasma for those that aren't clear on plasma? Yeah, so uh, the, you know, the point is the, the problem with many of these attempts to scientify things we see in cool movies is that we know too much about science, right? Mm-hmm. Like there's too many things that we know aren't how things would go. We know what the world is made out of, atoms, right? Atom has at the middle of it some protons and neutrons and electrons going around. And that's it. You, you don't have a lot of other particles to play with. We know what the particles are. And then you can push them around with gravity or with electricity or magnetism. That, those are basically your ingredients. You don't have that much. So a plasma is just when the atoms become so hot that the electrons get stripped from them. Mm-hmm. So rather than atoms with like a nucleus and electrons, you have a bunch of nuclei, plural of nucleus, mm-hmm. and a bunch of electrons flying around. So very, very, very hot gas becomes a plasma. So, mm-hmm. so is plasma um, a gas in a liquid state? It's in a plasma state. It's so that's plasma the definition state. is like a state beyond even gas. So like solid, liquid, gas, plasma. I see. So you're saying that um, via the observations, we start that the lightsaber isn't necessarily a bunch of photons contained in some kind of shape, but that it's probably some other state like a plasma, potentially. Yeah. In fact, it makes sense because the thing about if you, if you shine a laser pointer, so you see the red dot, right? Yeah. You don't see the line. Right, because photons just go straight in that direction, whatever direction they're pointing in. Right, so if a lightsaber shot out photons, you wouldn't see it. Right, so like nothing about a lightsaber is like light. <laughs> it's some other stuff that is glowing. Right, mm-hmm. so a plasma confined by an electromagnetic field, given the laws of physics that we currently understand, is sort of your best bet for trying to make something. Now, what about the property that the lightsaber exhibits that's able to essentially cut through anything? Like. What what does the plasma need to exhibit to be able to have that property? Well, I think that's why the plasma makes sense because the I mean the electromagnetic field that is confining it is what would give it solidity. So, like when you hit something with it, they would, the two of them would clash and hum. 
but uh, but by itself it might not have any you know damage that it would cause. So, but that plasma inside would have to be so hot mm. and so incredibly energetic. You can imagine that would be pretty hurtful to be hit by. Yeah. Yeah. So it sounds like we couldn't ever really create a lightsaber based on what we see in the movie, but a version of of it. Is that Look, you know, in the right. ballpark? A blaster is way more practical <laughs> yes. than a lightsaber. Right? But they're so uncivilized. Well, maybe, <laughs> but still easier to make. Yeah, easier to make, but and so much longer distance. So, so, so right. would that carry? So would that carry true for the blaster as well? Because to your point, if you point a a laser pointer at a wall. You don't see like a laser shot from the pointer to the wall. You just see the point at the end of the thing. But in Star Wars, you can clearly see the lasers shooting through the air almost yeah. like, like, like bullets. Yeah, and in fact, they're moving much, much more slowly than the speed of light. Right. So I, I suspect that there's some similarity between the blaster and the lightsaber and what it's shooting, right? Like the thing that is shot out of the blaster is probably like a little pellet of plasma rather than a beam of light, which mm. would be much faster. What, what kind of modern-day applications are there for this intense type of plasma, if, if, if any? Well, oh, there, there definitely are. I mean, for one thing, it, it, it exists in the sun, right? The sun is made of plasma, so okay. it keeps us warm. But uh, for technology down here on Earth, the best example is trying to recreate the sun, right? Nuclear fusion. Right. Mm -hmm. So you want nuclear fusion. You want particles that are really, really high energy smashing into each other. But the thing is that you, what you want to smash together for fusion are protons, right? These are some of the particles inside the nucleus. Protons are all positively charged. Like charges repel each other, right? Opposite charges attract. Electron and proton attract. Protons repel. So you get two protons, you get them closer and closer together, they push each other apart mm. really strongly. Mm -hmm. That's why fusion is hard. So you need that plasma, you need that electromagnetic sort of bottle to try to keep them together. And it still hasn't really worked, right? We still haven't gotten more energy out of nuclear fusion than we put in. I see. So if if you're trying to get these protons to come together, the way that you do it currently is by creating either an intense gravitational field that brings them together, and the amount of energy required to do that is more than what it bursts out, right? Well, gravitational field, the sun does that. We have right. no hope of using gravity. Have, Gravity's just so weak, right? Yeah. Um, electromagnetic forces we would use. And so we try. We try, like, shooting protons at each other. We try bottling them up in electromagnetic fields. So far, we've always it's always taken more energy than we've gotten out. It's still promising long-term, but we haven't quite cracked the technology. Yeah, and, and like... You know, were you going to jump in? No, no. You know, please. one one thing that – and this is my personal theory um, and I'm hoping that we can have a little discussion about this – is when when I think about the force and, you know, you have that Obi-Wan Kenobi line, the force is in, is in us, binds us together. Yeah. It's, it surrounds it us, surrounds penetrates us, us, penetrates us. To me, the force sounds a lot like gravity, you know? Mm. Um, because gravity, and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, Dr. Carroll, we have n we we understand how it, it's almost like the lightsaber. We can look at a movie and understand how the lightsaber works, and we can predict that if you hit a lightsaber against this thing, it's going to cut it in half. And we can we we know a ton about it, but we actually don't know how it works. Isn't that the same thing with gravity that we can we can predict? incredibly accurate predictions about gravity, but in fact, we don't have a particle for it and we have no idea how it works. It's kind of... I put it in between. Um, so there's two things. One is um, 
just in terms of gravity and how much we understand it, we have a really good theory of gravity, namely Einstein's general theory of relativity, right? Mm-hmm. What he became famous for. And it, but it depends on what your standards are. Like if you want to understand uh, the solar system, the galaxy, the universe, black holes, the Big Bang, general relativity does everything perfectly. Mm-hmm. It describes what happens. If you want to go to like the quantum level, right, like the fundamental ingredients of the universe, there we don't understand it. So we don't understand the marriage of quantum mechanics and gravity in any deep way. So I think it's fair to say we don't understand gravity at a fundamental level, but we understand it more than good enough for government work, right? Like, yeah, there's I no mean, look, secrets about how to manipulate it. Or to me, like that. to me, that's why I liken gravity to the force because when you look at the history of science, and look, granted, I'm an amateur. Not even an amateur. I'm just an enthusiast who just like, you know, my, you know, it just kicks my imagination into high gear. Mm. When you have um, a Newton with the sort of uh, the earliest understanding of gravity, um, you know, creating pretty intense predictions right after that, you, you know, you get the Industrial Revolution. Yeah. You know, it's, it's like his understanding of gravity launched an entire new world, right? Then you have Einstein comes in and optimizes it just a little bit, and then you have like a nuclear revolution, you know? Mm-hmm. So my understanding is that we know that the photon is the particle that carries light. We know, um, you know, the different particles that carry the, the electromagnetic force and stuff like this, that we've been able to observe them. Yeah. With gravity, we've never been able to actually observe the particle that generates the gravity. Well, you know, so yes and no. I have to be a little bit of a wet blanket here. Sure, so sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't I, – I, it's true that Newton, uh, you know, helped us understand gravity and then the Industrial Revolution got launched. And Einstein improved our understanding of gravity and we had a new set of revolutions. But those facts are not really connected to each other mm-hmm. because the thing about gravity is that even though it's all pervasive and everywhere, like you say, it's an incredibly dull instrument. Mm-hmm. All it does is pull things together. That's mm-hmm. it. The major difference – between gravity and electromagnetism is that in electromagnetism there are positive charges and negative charges, Mm. right? So you can get a bunch of positive and negative charges pulling each other together. You can get a bunch of positive charges pushing each other apart. You can get some combination to do anything. Like this table is held up by the electromagnetic forces that are in the atoms holding them together. Whereas gravity just pulls things together. It's boring. There's nothing interesting. You can't push things away using gravity, right? So it's very difficult to even imagine building interesting technologies based on gravity as we currently understand Interesting. It. So for the particle thing, we um, – you know, again, you expect that when you marry quantum mechanics and gravity together, there will be a particle, the graviton. I, I would put it more than 99 percent chance that that's true. But just like for electromagnetism, there's the photon. But again, gravity is very weak. You know, the, the example you like to give is that you know here is an object being pulled down by gravity mm. and being pulled up by electromagnetism, namely the muscular forces in my hand. Mm-hmm. And the gravity is the entire Earth is pulling it down, and the yeah. electromagnetism is like my little puny muscles, right? <laughs> and so I can still win, right? Like my hand is Got more it. powerful than the, all the gravity in the Earth, right? Interesting. So observing a single particle of gravity is almost unimaginable technologically. Wow. But we're, we're convinced that it's there. We can see gravitational waves. That was a big discovery just a couple of years ago. We finally um, directly detected gravitational waves at LIGO. Uh, two giant won, black holes yep, came won together. Won the Nobel Prize. Won the Nobel yeah. Prize. Right. Did a podcast. I interviewed Kip Thorne. I, I learned that uh, on your podcast. One of the, uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. It's a fascinating story. And, you know, um, that was something where 
Einstein thought about it, and it was just like, oh, this will never happen. It will never work, and we finally did it. Wow. So, okay, I have a question then when it comes to the Force, which is a creation, a religion almost for Star Wars. And every kid has been doing this. Like I sit at the light, and I and – I, oh, I turn the light using my mind. Is there science that says that sometimes, somehow, we could utilize a force? No. Or is that just absolute That's fiction? entirely nonsense. Yes. Sorry. I mean, there's You just broke things. my 10-year-old heart. <laughs> I, well, you know, you're, you're a big boy now. Yeah, <laughs> I am. I can, I can take this. Right. You know, there's obviously related things. These ideas don't come out of nowhere. Right. right? I mean, there's, you know, psychology, you know? And, in fact, it's not just psychology in, in kind of like a, the sense of taking psych personality quizzes. Right. Um, Human beings are more complicated than we often give ourselves credit for. And, you know, another podcast episode I did was with Lisa Zizadeh, who's a professor at USC, who works on embodied cognition, the mm -hmm. idea that thinking doesn't just happen in our brain, it happens in our bodies. Mm -hmm. And there's all sorts of studies that, you know, when you lose a limb, you, your brain still thinks it's there. Yeah. And if you get a prosthetic, it becomes part of who you are, right? Mm -hmm. It becomes part of your body. All of Darth Vader. Yeah. There you go. There it it really happens. And, and, there's a, a, a you know all sorts of ways in which we don't completely understand the sensory input that you and I get from the world around us. You know, some of it is just what you see and whatever, but we're still discovering new things about sight, right? Yeah. Much less sound, you know, below the completely conscious conscious mm -hmm. level. Um, so there's all sorts of psychological tricks, ways the mind can be manipulated, things like that that resemble or remind us of things that Obi-Wan could do, but right. it's not some mystical field. So, you know? so, Again, I'm on Han's side here. You know? Oh, yeah. No, right, I get it. Religions, <laughs> yeah. No excuse. Yeah. So, um, okay. So let, let's imagine that somehow um, we are able to identify the, um, the graviton particle and actually observe it. Now, given my perhaps incorrect thinking of Newton to Einstein and optimizing the understanding of gravity, giving us more technology and stronger things. If we were to able to observe this graviton particle, is is the science community pretty confident that the revolution in technology would just be like blink of an eye where we're almost at a completely different race at that point? I mean, that's a good question. So I want to say, well, we won't. So that won't happen. Um, but, you know, because we won't knows? observe it. You think it's that difficult? Well, so here's the thing. We and I talk about this in my book, The Big Picture. Um, there's fundamental physics, right? There's the search for the ultimate forces of nature and the building blocks of matter and energy and so forth. And this is an ongoing project. We found the Higgs boson, right, the Large Hadron Collider, et cetera. And then there is sort of applications of technology, superconductors, transistors, and all this stuff. And these two things have sort of split apart now. We, the basic stuff out of which technological devices are made is the same basic stuff now as it was in 1950. Mm. We haven't discovered new particles or forces that will, would be useful in any way to technology, and we might never discover those things. The, the future of technology will be transformational and revolutionary, but it will be inventing new ways to put into different combinations the old particles and forces we know. Mm. And the reason why is because even if there are other particles and forces – Either they interact so weakly with us that it doesn't matter, like gravitational waves are going through our body all the time and you know, we don't even notice, right? Mm -hmm. Or they take enormous energy to create, like the Higgs boson. You need a $9 billion particle accelerator uh, 30 kilometers around underground just mm -hmm. to make one. 
and it doesn't make for a better iPhone or anything like that, right? Sure. <laughs> so I, my guess, and I could be wrong, but my guess is that the future of technology is not going to be driven by new discoveries in fundamental physics. Interesting. Okay. Um, let, let's stick to the, um, to the Hadron Collider for a second. You said it was 30, 30 kilometers long? If you were to make it, let's say, 120 kilometers long, yeah. would you be able to create higher energies and potentially find newer constituent particles that maybe graviton would be one? Yeah. You know, this is um, a big debate right now in the community because we turned on the LHC Large Hadron Collider. This is the underground laboratory uh, outside Geneva. Mm. In around 2009, roughly speaking, it started working for real and discovered the Higgs boson in 2012. But physicists, including myself, were extremely optimistic that we wouldn't just find the Higgs boson. The Higgs boson was predicted in 1964. Mm, it's been wow. around a long time, right? Wow. And we finally found it. Great. In fact, we found it like just in time to give Nobel Prizes to a few of the survivors <laughs> right, who right. predicted That's it. Right. But um, we thought we would find more. We were very optimistic. We would not just find the Higgs. More as in more particles. Other different kinds of particles. Yeah. Wow. And we haven't. And maybe we will tomorrow. Like maybe you know, we'll get a, a press release. But we could have. We could easily. Like it would have been easy to find them already. And we haven't. And so the the case for building another big particle accelerator, you know, it's about time, right? I mean it's 10 years ago that we turned on the LAC. And um, maybe it's time to start at least planning for a new one. But unlike the previous one, this time we can't say what you're going to find, if anything. Like you could spend $20 billion building a new machine and find no new particles. Wow. And, or you could revolutionize all of physics. Right? This is what you, and, and if someone says, well, what's the chance? Uh, we have no way of even judging that, right? Right. Um, so it, that's a, it's a puzzle. And there might, it might be that you know, we've entered what was predicted a while ago to be the desert where uh, there aren't new particles to be found until we build a particle accelerator you know, the size of the solar system or something like that. Wow. Or have completely different ways of finding them. Yeah. And look, I don't think it's a coincidence that the force is called the force. I think that when George Lucas was putting this all together, that there must have been some tickle inside of him uh, with the four fundamental forces of the universe um, as like the basic constituent blocks that build everything, that everything you see are – are basically a recipe of these four forces interacting with each other, right? The strong force, the weak force, gravity, and, and electromagnetism. Um, and But for, for our listeners out there, I think it's really interesting to note that the one that's different than the others in terms of, you know, is, is gravity, right? Because the other three yeah. seem to get along just great. Yeah. But gravity is the one that doesn't get along with the other ones. That's right. And I think, you know, I, there's an angle on that because this was Einstein's great realization that the other forces that are not gravity kind of live inside space-time, right? You have space where we live, three dimensions of space, and you mm-hmm. have time ticking along. Mm-hmm. And Einstein was the one who came along and said, actually, you should marry them together in four-dimensional space-time. And electromagnetism, the nuclear forces, sort of live inside space-time. Whereas gravity kind of is space-time. It's a feature of space-time. Oh. This is, you know, if, you, if you've ever uh, heard these popular explanations where you say, well, if you were in a rocket ship and you were accelerating and the engine was really, really quiet, you know, like everything would be pushed down to the floor and it would be just like you were in a room in a gravitational field. This right. was Einstein's great realization that 
if you're in a room, if you're literally in this room, right, and you can't see outside, you can't tell whether you're in a gravitational field right. or not. And that's different. If you were in an electric field, you could say, well, here's a positively charged particle, here's a negatively charged particle. They go in other directions. But everything feels gravity in the same way. It's universal. And so that's what made Einstein say, well, it's different. It's universal. Maybe it's a feature of space and time itself. So maybe we shouldn't be surprised that it's also harder to reconcile it with the other forces. It's a different kind of thing somehow. Yeah. Um, Do you see – so you think – just to put a little button (laughs) on it, you think that given everything that we've learned to this day, which is quite a lot about the fundamental universe, that the observation of the graviton particle will likely never happen? I think it's unlikely to ever happen. Now – there are scenarios in which it could happen. Like if you want, if you give me five minutes, yeah, I, yeah, I can, yeah, yeah, is, yeah. Take yeah. all the time you want. I mean, yeah. so I'm fascinated. <laughs> yeah. So here's a crazy idea. You know, um, in lots of different theories of fundamental physics, such as superstring theory, where you replace little particles by little loops of string, the great thing about string theory is it's very specific about what can exist at the fundamental level. And one of the things is strings move through ten-dimensional spacetime. That's it. You have no choice, right? Okay. So we don't live in 10-dimensional space-time. So physicists of you know weaker metal would have just said, okay, that's wrong. But modern physicists are tough, and they said, no, no, no. We can take the six dimensions that we're missing, because we have four-dimensional space-time around us, and we can curl them up into a little ball, so tiny that you can't see it. So really, we live in 10-dimensional space-time, but you know, six of them are so thin that they're invisible, and the three of space and one of time are all that we actually notice. Hmm. That's been true for a long time. Recently, not not recently, I'm getting old, but 20 years ago, uh, people figured out, well, there's another way to hide the extra dimensions. They could be relatively big, but we can't get there. So like there's a three-dimensional sheet of paper that we live on, and there's extra dimensions perpendicular to that where we just can't go. We know that those extra dimensions can't be just like infinitely big empty space. Because then, interestingly enough, gravity would be different. You know, gravity really seems to live in a three-dimensional world. But gravity is also the weakest force. It's the force about which we have the least constraint in terms of data, in terms of experiments. Like, how, how well do you know that gravity really lives in three dimensions, right? Mm-hmm. Well, we know it down to like a distance of right now about tenth of a millimeter, like, I can't even make a, a distance that small. Right, but, yeah. So that seems small, but compared to the size of an atom, it's enormous. Yeah. Right? So you can imagine people were smart enough and they said like maybe th- there are extra dimensions of space that are literally a tenth of a millimeter across. And gravity could get out there. And in fact, what that would mean is that gravity is actually way stronger than you think. Mm. It's just diluted mm. by going out into these extra dimensions. Yeah. And if that's true, if gravity is really strong – then you can imagine making gravitons at the Large Hadron Collider or another part of it. Yeah, and wow. I, think that, I think the first time that I actually heard that, um, that, that the reason why you couldn't observe the graviton particle is that, in the, is that it's only in our three-dimensional or four-dimensional space for a fraction of a Planck scale or whatever it is, and then it moves into these other dimensions, I think was in Brian Greene's book, um, The Elegant Universe. Yeah. Um, so... Does does that just bringing it back to Star Wars for a second, right? You should, yes. If if I had the ability to manipulate this amazing force, right, which is the way that we understand it as human beings, of gravity, and I could create and I could create a curvature in the space time 
I could bring that cup over to me, right? I can also push that cup further away from me if I knew how to manipulate it in such a way. It's harder. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, oh, it's harder. The thing about gravity really? is right, right, because gravity pulls things. That's right, right, because I would have to make a gravitational right. thing f- over there. Yeah. It couldn't be focused around me. Exactly. That's right. So, yeah. But you know what? I, the way that I prefer That's to think about it is the galaxy yeah. a long, long time ago and far, far away yeah. isn't even in our observable universe. Mm. Right. Like if you can imagine that there's a multiverse where things are very different in different places, the force could just be a different thing. Right? Mm. It's not gravity. It's not electromagnetism. If we, if we really want to make it, okay, it is scientific and it's the laws of physics as we know them, but try to fit the data, I would make it something different. I would not try to explain it in terms of the things we know already. Make right. it something that is – and the way to do it is the, the forces that we know and love, gravity, electromagnetic, those are basically it and the nuclear forces. They're Again, they're pretty dumb. In the sense that to get more force, you just get more particles together. To get more gravity, you just get more mass. To get more electromagnetism, you get more charged particles. What if there was a force that didn't work that way? It it wasn't just a single thing where you just like built up more and more charges and then had more and more force. But it depended on some complex, specific arrangement of, you know, chemical signals, maybe time-dependent things going on in your brain. It's something that you could master and, you know, become adept at and, mm. and you wouldn't even notice it if you're just doing dumb experiments, dropping things on the ground. Right. I th- don't think that's our world that we live in, but right. that's the kind of science I would want so, to explain this. So so for that, for that to work then, you're saying that the reason our universe works the way that it does is because we have these four forces that we understand fairly well and – I assume that these four forces were predefined uh, somehow at the creation of our universe, right? Yeah. So that there's other universes that could have the same basic four forces but in different variables and would create like like an entire well, – Different laws of physics. Yeah, different local laws of physics. Do you guys do thought yeah. experiments like that of creating oh, yeah. other universes with different fundamental forces? Who doesn't? Yeah, sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And like do you guys model it out like 14 billion years? Like, like uh... So here's – yeah. So this is part of um, the story about the multiverse, the cosmological multiverse. Mm. And you know, again, in string theory – um, all this is not necessarily tied to string theory, but string theory is a big inspiration for a lot of these ideas. So we said you have six dimensions of space. You curl them up and hide them. So eventually they started asking, well, how many different ways are there to curl up six dimensions? Like mm-hmm. if you think of a two-dimensional thing, you can make a sphere or a donut. There's a small number of things. What about six dimensions? And you know, How could you curl it up? Um, every different way you curl up the extra dimensions gives you different local laws of physics. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Different particles, different forces, different the whole bit. And it turns out there's a big number of ways. And we wow. don't know what the number is, but people throw around numbers like 10 to the 500 oh, different wow. ways. House. So just to give you some scale, the total number of particles in the observable universe is 10 to the 88th. Wow. So Jeez. 10 to the 500 is just this unimaginably big, crazy number. That's amazing because this whole time – and like I subscribe to the multiverse concept only because um, – look, and like I do this like in the same way that I subscribe to love or something like that with no real yeah. empirical – Love you is know, more anything. definite than yeah. love. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, Believe in love. But for me, about the multiverse. for me until now, I always thought that the, that the other universes kind of function like – you know, galaxies or whatever, that it's the same fundamental thing just outside. Because 14 – if our universe is 14 billion years old and our planet is 4 billion years old, 
our planet's old. Like, yeah. like our planet's been around for 25, 27% of the entire existence of the universe. Yeah. Mm. You know, like that, that seems pretty old to me. Well, yeah, there's something weird that we don't understand about the universe because 14 billion is an incredibly tiny number. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, so it, 14 billion, what a scientist would say is that's 1.4 times 10 to the 10, right? You know, one and then 10 zeros. Mm-hmm. Um, the last star will burn out 10 to the 15 years from now. So that is 100,000 times the age of the current universe, right? So Jeez. our universe is really young. <laughs> when you say 4 billion years is old, yeah. what you mean is that, you know, the whole universe is young compared to how old it could be. Yeah, it's and old to us because that seems like a big number compared to, to us. us. Compared and, to you know, us. It's, it's probably not just a coincidence because the universe, as it grows older, it will become more feeble and less interesting. The stars mm. will stop shining. Life will probably go away. So it's probably not a coincidence that we appear relatively young in the universe's history. But if you're a cosmologist, you say, okay, how many years are there between now and the beginning? 14 billion. How many years between now and the end? Infinity. Mm. <laughs> we don't think the universe is ever going to end. Right, it's right. It's a huge imbalance between but, that. But we know where the last star will burn out. We can, yeah, we know how much fuel there is. We can roughly estimate how Which long Which is what, it will 10 take. to the 5? 10 to the 15 years. 10 to the 15 right? years. Compared to ten, 10 to the 10 years yeah. of the current age of the universe. That's incredible. And wow. then the last, so those stars, that after they burn out, they will fall into black holes. Okay. And Stephen Hawking in the 1940s said that black holes aren't completely black. They give off radiation and they evaporate away. Mm. The last black hole in the universe evaporates away once and for all 10 to the 100 years from now. Yeah. So, and then it's just empty space, lonely and dark forever. So look, oh, for, for our listeners, when it, when it comes to the force, okay, I'm still thinking gravity yeah. is potentially the force. But to Sean's point, um, you can grab the saber, mm-hmm. but you can't, you can't push Throw away. or yeah. push it away. You can't push it away, which okay, I think is interesting. To be the, you know, even worse scientist, <laughs> um, you can't even grab it. You can't even grab it. No, you can't even grab it because – Because you would grab everything around you. Well, you'd already be grabbing it. Remember, gravity is the dumbest thing in the world. You tell me how much mass I have, mm. then I know how much gravity there is. So unless I suddenly grow in mass by like you know accreting particles from all over me right. – um, and again, you know, the gravitational field that you exert on me right now is completely negligible. You would have to be the mass of, you know, a very big mountain for me to even barely notice to your gravitational field. barely feel field, it. That's right? amazing. Wow. Gravity is dumb and, 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 and a and blunt weak. instrument. Yeah, and weak. So sticking with gravity for one second, there's something that I've been like trying to figure out in my own thought experiment for weeks now and I just I can't do it. Okay. And it's such a – it seems, sounds like such a simple thing. But a huge part of Star Wars lore is this concept of the binary star system, which we know to exist. Correct? Oh, yeah, all over the place. Yeah. Okay. And there's even trinary star systems. Is that? Sure. Yeah. yeah. So what I, what I want to understand is that if you have a binary star system, um, is there always one sun that's more dominant than, than, than the other? So, they're, so one of the suns actually um, orbits around one of the other suns or – do nope. they share the orbit? How does that work? That's a great question because it's an a, amazing variety. Binary stars are fascinating. And so you they can be equal. 
They can be very, very different. One of them can be like a big main sequence, as we say, sort of middle-aged star shining brightly, and the other one could be a tiny little neutron star or black hole or white dwarf. They can be very close. There are stars that look like peanuts because there's two stars that are touching each other, orbiting mm. each other. Um, they can coalesce. They can blow up. You know, the, a supernova... One of the ways in which to make a supernova is to have a white dwarf star, which is a star that's sort of given up, that's used up all its fuel and just sort of settled in. Uh-huh. And then it has a friend, uh, you know, a companion. So there's a binary. And the companion is, is uh, yet to go through at the end of its life cycle. It puffs up because that's what happens when stars get old. They puff up. And it starts accreting, throwing matter onto the white dwarf until the white dwarf just explodes. Like it wow. reaches so much mass that it collapses and the outer layers get blown off. That's a supernova. All right. so, but but when you have two suns orbiting around um, or two suns close enough, um, do any of the planets go in between the suns and do like figure eight type things? Because like like I'm trying to picture if if space is like a cloth and yeah. and these objects literally bend the space and curve it and all this stuff like Einstein taught us. And you have two suns that are next to each other. Like I'm trying to think of it as like like as an experiment. Yeah. Wouldn't those two suns just kind of like if I were to put two gigantic marbles on a huge piece of fabric, I can imagine that the two marbles would just fall into each other. That's right. But mm. the two stars, for whatever reason, when they formed, were moving with respect to each other. So that's why they start orbiting, right? Mm. And so you so, can orbit so the, the linear two speed. stars. Yeah, the two stars can orbit each other for a very, very long time. Um, planets can exist around such stars, but it's tricky. It's actually hard to have a system of two things and something else orbiting both. I see. Uh, they would never, like, go through and do interesting things because they would either fall into one of them right, or right. they would get spat out, mm. right? So you see, even in our solar system, there's, like, one dominant thing, the sun. Everything orbits that unless you're orbiting a smaller thing, right? So everything is basically circles, right? Mm. That's how things like to orbit. Uh, planets move on basically circles around the sun. Moons move on basically circles around... Uh, the because they're all going in a straight line, <coughs> and that speed is what keeps them in orbit. Well, yeah, I mean, there's a little bit of a battle, right? Like, the planet wants to move straight, and then gravity is pulling it, so that combination of that makes it go in a circle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. So, so wait a minute, because so this is a big thing. binary stars are not a good place to have planets. Right, right, right. <laughs> so you're <laughs> talking about point. Luke Skywalker, yeah. right? Right, you're right. You're talking so about the twin sons of Tatooine. If he's looking at that, is he pulled – is he destroyed? What he's saying is actually in the observable universe that we understand Mm. that planets are actually quite rare in binary star systems, correct? In binary star systems, probably. So what you would need is – and maybe this is true in Tatooine that the two stars are so close Mm -hmm. that to us out here on Earth or whatever, uh, they might as well just be one thing. Okay. Right. No, no, but no, because in the movies they're two very distinct yeah, stars. Correct. That's not good. Yeah. Not good. <laughs> not good. I think we just uncovered something here. Yeah. Scandal. 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 Well, I mean, you know, again, par- Parsec. He was using that one wrong. Oh, so. There are lightsabers in the force. So, There's you know, lightsabers. I, I, I think force. the stars are low on the list. All right. So okay. What, how about one more question? Because we do have to get wrapping look, it up. First of all, the beautiful thing about this show, and like, look. I do want to be sensitive to Sean's time, but yes. red light, green light, it's all irrelevant <laughs> to me. You, know, you that, got it. Well, that's time. one of the perks of owning this, you know, yeah. the, you know, the company. But um, all right. One thing that I do want to get into is the yeah. carbonite. You want to do the carbonite? Yeah. 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 Um, I, I like that. So in Empire Strikes Back, we get Han Solo, our hero. Uh, Princess Leia says, I love you. He famously replies, I know. Okay. And then he's frozen in carbonite. 
you know? In perfect hibernation. In perfect hibernation and carbonate. Now, can you please explain to our listeners out there, because when when people tell me, oh, you're a carbon-based creature, like, what does that mean? Oh, um... I don't even know if carbonite is carbon-based. Like, how, do we know what carbonite is? Is a do, word. It's a right? good question. <laughs> yeah, looks it's, kind it's of gray. a word. Yeah, it yeah. looks so gray. You, it, it looks like you were frozen. On because the I think of carbon. And... Like when I think of carbon, I start thinking of carbon in Spanish, which is like uh, coal. Right, like charred things. Yeah, yeah like, but no, uh, all life is based on carbon, just because it's the most versatile atom. You can take one carbon. So if you have, you know, nitrogen. Right, which mm-hmm. is another very common thing, um, and you want to put other atoms on it to make a molecule. The simplest thing to do: you can stick three little hydrogen atoms on it. Methane comes out. No, sorry, ammonia comes out. Oh my goodness, um, I'm going to be kicked out of the science club. Um, but carbon, you can string them together. So you can string an arbitrarily long chain of carbon t- atoms together, and then dress them with hydrogen and oxygen and all these things going on. So you can make interesting different combinations, which is why in chemistry, like if you roughly speaking, now my chemist friends are going to be mad at me, but roughly speaking, there's organic chemistry and inorganic chemistry, right? Right. The two major kinds of chemistry. Organic to a chemist just means it involves carbon. Mm. And inorganic just means it doesn't involve carbon. So like the chemistry of carbon is as interesting as the chemistry of all other elements combined. So so what's the atomic weight of carbon? 12. 12? So... um, you know, when when people say we're all made of stardust or like we're all, you know, we all come from stars and stuff like that, you know, my understanding of it is, is that um, in the beginning there was only hydrogen and then hydrogen accreted and, and then the pressure created helium and then that densed up and they created, you know, the heavier elements and so on and so forth. So carbon is the – does the atomic weight also mean that carbon is the 12th? like element that ever existed in the universe is that like no not quite because um it's the kind of the protons that matter more than the you know protons plus neutrons which Mm. is atomic weight but the point is i mean it is a very it took scientists a long time to figure out where the elements came from because Mm. there's two places to look and neither one of them works by themselves you actually need both one place to look is in the big bang right Mm -hmm. the big bang was hot and dense and it, it cooled off And when it was hot enough, there couldn't be any elements except for hydrogen. This is what you're talking about, right? Mm -hmm. Like if any any two protons or neutrons tried to stick together, they would just be shorn apart by all the heat and the pressure. Um, But as it cools, then it's possible, right? Then you can have nuclear fusion. You can have these protons come together to make heavier things. But also it's becoming less and less dense and cooler. So it's becoming harder for them to find each other. Mm. And as the math turns out, you make a lot of helium in the Big Bang, and you make trace amounts of lithium, and that's basically it. Is, lith- is lithium three? Lithium, yeah. Lithium yeah. is three, right. Yeah. And everything else is made in stars. That's interesting. Roughly yeah. speaking, there's some like, tiny little fraction are made in, in interstellar space. But yeah, everything else, you need stars, which is why the first generation of stars were boring, because there's nothing but hydrogen and helium to make mm. them out of. Once the, those first stars exploded, they littered the cosmic neighborhood with all these heavier elements, and so carbon, oxygen, nitrogen, all the way up to iron and past. So could you – is the concept of freezing somebody in carbonite just completely it's – just, it's just fantasy at that point? Well, I think that the – I can imagine in principle technology that was good enough to freeze somebody and then call them back out. 
Mm-hmm. Um, in practice, it wouldn't be like a popsicle, right? Like, you right. would need like some nano machines in there making sure, like if if it's like ice cream, right? Like if you melt it and then refreeze it, it's not the same as before, right. Right. because you get all these ice crystals and they grow, and that would kill you if you were a person and they froze you. So um, it's trickier than they make it out in the movie, but I think that the idea of putting someone to suspended cryogenic hibernation is at least compatible with the laws of physics and biology. Right. And, and, and cryogenic hibernation, like the most advanced forms of that that we've experimented with or at least conceptualized for like deep space travel does that work by because my understanding is when something cools down the interaction of the atomic particles slows down and when something heats up the it speeds That's up right yeah right so is cryogenic hibernation just the art or the or the thing of slowing down your particles basically or basically yeah I mean, you know temperature is roughly the average speed of the molecules mm. in whatever you're made of, you know, a cup of coffee or whatever. Um, so, yeah, if you if you freeze something really fast, right, you just stop everything in it from moving. Mm. Uh, the problem is, you know, in the real world, you, like, would freeze from the skin inwards <laughs> slowly, right? Mm. So you would die, right, because, you know, it's not very uh, uniform. But, in, again, in principle, if you could just stop everything in a body from moving and then start it up again sometime later, it would go on more or less intact. Yeah. All right. I mean, look, man, this whole thing about Star Wars being more fantasy than sci-fi started to come, you know. It's really starting to make sense. Yeah, it's really yeah, starting yeah. to make sense. <laughs> yeah, that's what it like is. Carbonite might not even be a thing. Is car- so carbonite – No, it's magic space cowboys. <laughs> yes, okay. magic space cowboys. Right. Carbonite here, according to Wikipedia, is yeah. – uh, <laughs> Is the is a liquid substance made from carbon gas and could change uh, to solid through rapid freezing. There you go. There it is. So <laughs> I don't think we. <laughs> you know, yeah. you, know look, you can conceivably think about look, it, but this is a bittersweet moment for me because I know I I, I do think we have to stop. What time is it? It's four fifteen. It is four fifteen. Yeah. Correct. Have me back. Yeah. We would love would to you have come you back. back. I'll come back. Okay. First of all, thank you because now I have a whole bunch of other questions. <laughs> there is so much. I I was just sitting here going. Yeah, because I, I'm, I'm still convinced that we haven't gotten to the bottom of this force thing. You're the right. Of the force. I, I'm still going to hold true to the fact that I'm going to learn the force by the end of my life. <laughs> it's that it's, it's, so it's that going that. to happen yeah, sooner see, or later. The midichlorian thing. I, I I wanted to get into that. But, I know uh, midichlorians. We'll have them back. Sequel. We'll yeah. have them back. So so once again, let, let's let's let the folks know where they can find Sean's uh, podcast. Because yes. if you had fun listening to this episode, you will just completely geek out on your drive listening to Sean talk about the universe and reality. And all this stuff. It's fascinating, fascinating stuff. And you always get great guests on. Um, so I highly, highly recommend it. Uh, and, and by the way, yeah. it's not even all just science, right? Like I have musicians and movie directors and yeah. chefs and poker players. So uh, obviously, a, yeah. Scott Derrickson, Almost Breaking, Doctor Strange too. You I have know. them all. And uh, well, thank you very much for joining us, Sean. And it is Mindscape is the podcast you can check out on all major platforms for podcasts. Uh, and then your book. I want to plug your book, The Big Picture on the Origins of Life, Meaning, and the Universe Itself. You also said you have a new book coming out soon. I'm finishing up the draft for a new book called Something Deeply Hidden, which mm. is on the many worlds, a formulation of quantum mechanics. Okay. And it'll be out in September. Fantastic. And, 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 and just really quick, what's the difference between many worlds and, and, and multiverse? Yeah, so there's many differences. Roughly speaking, the cosmological multiverse, which is why I keep using that adjective, is just the idea that there are regions of space very, very far away where conditions are very different. Mm. So it sounds very plausible. Um, but we don't know if it's there. Maybe there's a 50-50 chance that it is actually like that. The 
multi the the many worlds of quantum mechanics say when I have an electron that could be in some superposition of spinning clockwise and spinning counterclockwise, and I observe it and I see oh it's spinning clockwise. There comes into existence a whole other universe where there's a me who saw it spinning counterclockwise. Oh. And that sounds enormously weirder and is much more likely to be true than the cosmological multiverse. Okay. Like I put that – I say that's a 95, 98 percent chance of being right, whereas the oh cosmological multiverse, we don't know. And does this have anything to do with the, the idea of quantum entanglement, of observing – Everything. Everything. Read my book. Okay. <laughs> Something deep. Right. Homework assignment. But, yeah. yeah. But it's not out yet. It's not out yet. Okay. Not, you can't even order it yet. But okay. you, can, you can anticipate it. Okay. Cool. Cool. <laughs> well, we will let everybody know who's listening to the show now when that does come out. Um, you are on Twitter, correct? At Sean M. Carroll. That's right. Okay. At Sean M. Carroll. Please go check him out. It was wonderful having you. I have so many more questions. Me How about too. one last one? Just give me the yes or no. Can we make a Death Star? We? <laughs> uh, yeah. There's, there's, there's way more efficient ways to have a, um, a weapon of extraordinary a, power. A, a planet-killing yeah. weapon that can uh, right. travel through space. Because, yeah. you know, going back to Newton. And apparently it's the only idea in this entire galaxy, which is also weird. But, yeah, you know, right, the right. only big weapon. Yeah, and, and, like, because if you think about Newton and, like, you shoot that, that, that beam out, that Death Star is going in the other direction like uh, like a rocket ship, right? And, yeah, there's a lot of engineering flaws in yeah. this, yeah. this Star So that's and, a big no Killer, there. All right. And, and Starkiller <laughs> Base in, uh, in The Force Awakens sucks the, uh, the, sun. the sun into yeah. – and, and then the, shoots it across many solar systems, taking out the cradle of the Republic while a band of resistance fighters are watching the entire thing. That couldn't happen. It's, yeah, we have to get into that, but no. We, yeah. <laughs> all, so. right, all right. Uh, all right. Awesome, I, awesome. And yeah. I had a lot of fun, Sean. Thank you so Me much, too. man. Yeah, I had a great time, Sean. Thank you very much. I am at Riley Around on Twitter and Instagram. It's Mark Fernandez, at Mark Fernandez on Twitter. And uh, this is Rule of Two, Episode 26. You can find us on the Jedi Council Podcast One feed. And we'll be up on Tuesday on Collider Video's YouTube channel. We'll see you next week. Rise. Napa know-how. This month, Napa's got all kinds of motor oil deals that can save you some serious cash. Like a five-quart jug of Napa full synthetic motor oil for just $16.49. With savings like that, you may start feeling like a VIP. But don't let it go to your head. These oil deals are for everyone. Quality parts, helpful people. That's Napa know-how. Napa know-how. General states pricing. Sales prices not include applicable state local taxes or recycling fees. Offer ends 831.20. It's that little chico pit bull, Mr. 305, better said Mr. Worldwide, and I'm here to tell you about my new podcast, From Negative to Positive, brought to you by my friends over at State Farm. I believe that to have success, you got to play the game, so that the game doesn't play you. You know, the biggest risk you take is not taking one. It's very important that you make sure that you make the most out of your money, especially when it comes to insurance. State Farm offers surprisingly great rates. They have great agents standing by helping you personalize your coverage. All this is backed up by award-winning, easy-to-use technology. It's a great price with an even greater service. When you want the real deal, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.